Hey, what's going on, Refine Nation? I am super excited to drop a conversation with Courtney and Gordon from New Atlantis about how they're using the power of Web3, decentralized science, and engaging an entire academic community of scientists of how to preserve our oceans and restore one of the most precious habitats that are at the risk of catastrophic collapse. The target here is to preserve 30% of the oceans by 2030, and they have pioneered several different technologies, bringing them together into an open platform to incentivize marine protected areas, which are effectively the national parks of the oceans, to actually protect their waters, to deploy the resources required to maintain these as um, sacred areas in the ocean that aren't being fished, and seeing that this actually is possible with the technology of metagenomics and inviting an academic community of scientists to create predictive models about what actually happens in the increase in biodiversity and carbon sequestration when we don't fish a particular area. There's a lot of new concepts in this episode. It was definitely a catching up to speed for myself. Got John X back as a co-host, which was super fun. And so if you're interested in how Web3 can be applied to spaces outside of the traditional carbon market, looking at oceans particularly as this vast expanse of opportunity, um, this is an episode that I think you'll enjoy. Gordon and Courtney are experienced and very successful entrepreneurs. They sold their last venture, Smarty Pants, to Unilever, and um, they've brought a wealth of experience and information with them to this movement and have been a really integral part of our founding community at ReFiDAO. So hope you like the episode. Thanks for your time and uh, let us know what you think. Hey, hey, good morning, Gordon. Good to see you, man. How are you feeling? Excellent. And thank you for having us on today. My pleasure. Hey Courtney, I'm so grateful to finally meet you. Heard a lot of good things about you. Uh, looks like the sun is shining where you guys are today. Where are y'all calling in from? It is. We're up in Ojai, California. Super beautiful. It's like an hour and a half north of LA up in the mountains. A little nice. mountain valley. It's really pretty. Lovely. Oh, cool. I don't actually know Ojai. And uh, John, welcome back, man. Great to have you back on the show. What's the last couple of months been like for you, bro? Ah, it's, um, yeah, I, I feel like I've washed up on the rocks and now I'm sort of going into re regeneration <laughs> mode. I just got back to London, <laughs> to my home for, yeah, I feel like I haven't been here for more than a few days since summer at least. So it's good to be home. Awesome, man. Well, it's great to have you. Um, thanks so much for joining. For those who don't know much about New Atlantis, I'd love to kick off just by Reaching the problem domain, uh, I feel like oceans are a kind of vast expanse um, that some people know little about, but not much. Maybe give us a framing of the problem that you guys are trying to address, Courtney, and how it fits into the bigger picture of yeah, climate change and everything else that we're working towards. It was good to kick off with that vast expanse pun, John. I really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> so the um, problem is that... Obviously, um, oceans play a massive role in so many things in our world. 30 to 60% of the breaths that we breathe come from the ocean. It obviously serves to regulate the weather. It protects our coasts from storm damage. It 
you know, provides many, many of the resources in the food web that we rely on, but it does not get or has not gotten historically as much attention when it comes to what we think of as ecological collapse, right? We talk a lot about climate change, but there has not been as much attention, although it's starting to shift towards biodiversity collapse. And that gets, uh, you know, even trickier in the ocean because we can't see what's going on below the surface. And so industrialized fishing and warming, uh, you know, acidification, a lot of these things that are happening at a very fast pace in our ocean just hasn't gotten the attention and therefore also hasn't gotten the funding and so or the innovation. So it's starting, but that's really kind of how we got here, which is that the oceans play a disproportionate role, but really has not gotten the same amount of attention when it comes to trying to really regenerate and not only arrest what's happening, but turn things around uh, for us. Absolutely. And I'm curious how you both stumbled on this opportunity. I know you both have recently exited a venture at Smarty Pants and um, have yeah, been active entrepreneurs. Gordon, what was the transition from your time at Smarty Pants? Maybe get a little bit of background there about how you guys stumbled on this and decided, you know what, this is what we want to dedicate the next chapter of our lives to. Um, un unsurprisingly, like the catalyst was really Courtney and Courtney's uh, interests. And so Courtney uh, was on the board of a well-known nonprofit called Only One uh, that focused on raising awareness for ocean and ocean-related uh, issues and initiatives. And they worked with uh, some very famous artists in the ocean media field, Christina Mittemeyer and Paul Nicklin. And the initial conversations really kind of stemmed around, oh, can we use NFTs to raise money for nonprofits, but kind of sort of quickly realize that that's, that's a viable way to go, but it's not really solving the problem. And it's just essentially another fundraising mechanism. And to Courtney's point, you know, the ocean is the largest biome on the, in the, on the planet. The pelagic biome is a billion cubic kilometers, so it's really big. Um, but we don't have really great approaches to it at the moment. And, you know, as entrepreneurs, we were interested in trying to figure out, is there a way to create a viable, sustainable business model that aligns human prosperity and financial well-being with improvements in the ocean's ecological health? Um, and so Courtney and I have been ideating on that for the last, I don't know, 14 months or so. Yeah, really for yeah. a year. And listening yeah. to and watching a lot of what you guys have been doing. I mean, we've been in what, you know, a member of your DAO and listening to those conversations. And I think we did spend about a year trying to figure out where we could help. You know, there are a lot of places where mm. uh, land-based solutions, you've got a lot of energy there, but it did seem to us that ocean was a place where we might be able to bring some attention and again, biodiversity. And we do our little dance where I was frustrated, things weren't moving fast enough. And Gordon said, oh, you know, DAOs are this emerging organization structure and this potential of NFT. Then I said, hey, what about MPA? And they said, yeah, well, well, marine, which are marine protected areas, these national parks of the ocean. And he said, yeah, that's interesting, but what if we could lay on top of it an incentive structure? And then, so we sort of do this dance back and forth, which is kind of how we, how we do things until we really started to, I think, hone in on something that looked viable. And then we started building an amazing team of people around us that are, you know, uh, brilliant at what they do. We are changing the chemistry of the ocean. Life is having a hard time. Biomass is not increasing. And, and the biomass in the ocean itself is a sequester of carbon. So one of the ways that we can solve the carbon issue is by increasing the biomass in the ocean. So to, and that also has all these other benefits. So 
while we were going through this discovery, marine protected areas, you know, are the good news, which is that there is a way and there is a scientific consensus around the success of marine protected areas, which are these, you know, national parks. Uh, And they're actually working right now on a high seas treaty to create a national park for non-governmental territory, which is a really interesting problem. Uh, We were just talking about that yesterday with some folks, but, um, it became clear that that's the right model, right? That if you let the ocean regenerate, it will. And it can take, and it can happen in two years or it can happen in 20, but that's why the UN has set this goal, that by 2030, if we can get 30% of the ocean under protection, they think it will regenerate in time to avoid collapse of the food web and a lot of the bad things that we don't want to happen. So that's the good news. The problem with marine protected areas, there is no business model. So the way it works now, those marine protected areas are funded primarily by governments or philanthropy, neither one of which are predictable, right? The markets change and all of a sudden that philanthropy disappears. Governments change hands, different agendas. And while governments are increasingly paying attention to these issues, they're just not moving fast enough. So when we saw the problem, we have about 8% of the ocean currently under protection, but only 2.5% under what would be considered full protection, which is what really allows for the regeneration that we're looking for. The goal is 30% by 2030. So the math gets pretty amazing, right? You're going from 2.5% to 30%. We've got seven years. And this is the place where I think entrepreneurs can help, which is, you know, we like really complex problems that other people, you know, haven't solved yet. And we're good at building teams. And so we looked at it and thought, I wonder if there's a way for us to create a business model that would change the incentive structure around MPAs and to provide an additional source of funding and to do that in a way that doesn't require the MPAs to take a risk, right? And so the way we do that is by creating, we're putting assets in the water to collect and sequence DNA. That information is shared with those MPAs. It is not our price. This is obviously going to be on a public platform, open source, and it allows them to potentially create the foundation for a biodiversity credit market, which doesn't exist yet. And there's a reason for that. And that's a whole other problem set. But anyway, that's what's, what is compelling about MPAs is they work. That's the good news. The bad news is they don't have a business model yet that will drive the acceleration. And if we can add this incentive layer that Gordon talked about, we think we can make that happen a lot faster. And it's clear to us based on just even a recent uh, conference in Baja where a lot of the government representatives were there, there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for something like this. Awesome. Super, super cool. So that's cool. the good news. Yeah. I have kind of had a couple of brushes with the concept of a marine protected area in my past. Um, I'm really curious what your experiences are navigating the political landscape and, you know, how do these marine protected areas come about? What's the difference between what you call full protection and Mm -hmm. the alternative? What are the implications of that for um, how biodiversity and kind of life regenerates, how the ocean regenerates? And maybe even starting out, what forms of protection are actually applied to these particular areas? So it is tricky to navigate. I mean, it is a complex system. So I'll give you an example. In Baja, they're working right now on a marine protected area that would be one of the largest actually in the world to surround all of Baja. And the goal is 50% of that area would be full protection. And the other 50% would allow for things like artisanal fishing, uh, sport fishing, which in Baja obviously is a big part of their economy. 
it's really most of these MPAs, what they're focused on is industrialized fishing because that is what is so destructive, right? And and also what they found, as you know, in the, within the marine protected area, if you get to full protection, the boundary areas end up being much more productive. So you can actually increase your fishing around those areas. So it's a win all the way around, but they, there is a dance for sure. And every single country is different because what their priorities are and how much income comes from different kinds of fishing. I mean, mm -hmm. the thing I think we've learned, or I've certainly learned, is that the fisher folk are actually some of the best advocates for this because they mm. make their survive, right? This is an existential threat for them. It's not an, yeah. I mean, I guess economic threat, that's tied, but do you know what I mean? That for them, this is how they're feeding their families and they're taking at a sustainable level. It's the industrial, and so the industrialized fishing is a threat to them as well, right? And so it is very complex and you have to navigate, but what we, you know, this is the reality. If you do the, in, the incentive design correctly, the conversation gets a lot easier. <laughs> and so the more that you can create aligned, you know, ways for the government to make money along with the NGO, along with the community, along with potentially investors, you know, the conversation just gets easier. And in fact, we, we've been having these conversations with, with uh, some folks involved in this high seas treaty conversation around biodiversity protection in the oceans. And what all these countries are looking for is pretty modest. They're not trying to ask for a huge amount of money, but they just want to make sure it's fair. That is what yeah. they're focused on, right? There's been so much exploitation in a lot of these countries of their resources that I think what they're really trying to do is they, they want it to be fair and they need the communities to be taken care of. And that's its own kind of complex web as well. But if it and were you easy, on, you know, it already be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you touched on a key phrase around incentive design and I went back to the original thought, Gordon, of your guys back and forth around, oh, could you do NFTs to raise money for this or for that? What is the solution to this? How do you create a viable business model for marine protected areas? Um, Courtney, you touched on your guys' methodology, but Gordon, give us a kind of understanding of what New Atlantis is and how it works and some of the core ideas behind it, if you will. The basic focus of New Atlantis is to really enhance and you know preserve, enhance, and expand biodiversity and biomass in the oceans. And so, um, what New Atlantis is looking at, and as Courtney alluded to, these marine protected areas, which are necessary for the regeneration of the ocean, we need to get to thirty percent of the oceans to be like you know fully protected by twenty thirty. If we're really going to plus have sustainable fishing practices in addition to that, if we're going to have healthy the oceans for you know for the long term and so what new atlantis really does is it looks at using what's called metagenomics or sometimes often referred to as environmental dna edna e is kind of a broad catch-all term a lot of time when you hear about it it's like refers to what's called meta barcoding which is sort of a simplified version of edna where it looks for particular genes what we're doing is called full metagenome analysis and so we can take a water sample we can look for you know, DNA that's been shed by various organisms in that water sample and figure out like who's living there in what relative abundance. And we can take it a step further 
and really start to understand the metabolic health of those ecosystems. So we can say, like, is this is this ecosystem healthy? Is it trending in the right direction? Is it, uh, you know, are are the the species that are there are they are they doing well? Are they expanding? Do they have a lot of like what's called phylogenetic diversity, um, meaning do they have a lot of genes within their populations that can allow them to be highly adaptive to climate change and other sort of stressors in their environment? And by understanding and quantifying the biodiversity within an MPA, we can start to benchmark how well that MPA is doing at protecting and expanding biodiversity. And, be, and from that can flow many different sort of benefits. One can be an estimate on how much blue carbon is being sequestered and shuttled uh, to the ocean depth. So how much carbon is like living in the biomass itself and how much is actually then being shunted off to sort of long-term sequestration uh, mm. on the seafloor. Um, another is like looking at forecasting the, the health of the ecosystems themselves. Like what does it mean for the fisheries? Like, you know, are they going to be healthy fisheries or are they not going to be healthy fisheries? Are they the coral reefs going to maintain their health uh, and so that they can protect the storm, uh, you know, coasts from storm damage. Um, as I think Courtney mentioned, you know, a coral reef can um, uh, can disperse up to 97% of wave energy from a storm. So it's like important if you live on a beach and you live in an area where there's monsoons or hurricanes, you want that reef to be healthy because otherwise you can have a big problem um, when they hit the shore. And so by being able to look at the quantity, the biodiversity itself, we can sort of make an estimate on like, okay, how, how, how much is, how much growth is likely to happen here for what species and what, what's going on with commercially important species as well. Um, there's a whole sort of side piece of it too, uh, where it's sort of starting to look at the genetic components within the marine ecosystems themselves for different types of organisms that maybe have applications in, in synthetic biology or in pharma as well. So there's there's a lot of ways that the, the 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 quantification of biodiversity can start generating revenues, and those revenues then flow back to the marine protected area and to the investors in the project itself. So that the better the MPA does, the more money the MPA is generating to expand their conservation and protection efforts, and the more money the investors can make along the way. The thing that's so the thing that's been so challenging, right? We have carbon credits because trees don't move. This has been the big unlock. Like right now, there's so much funding going into carbon credits and none into biodiversity because there hasn't been a way to do it because biodiversity moves, life moves. And so it makes it very hard to get a baseline and then to measure change. And if you can figure out a way to do that by getting a more accurate view of what's going on in these MPAs, there's a massive unlock there. So there's all this funding over here that wants to invest in biodiversity and there's biodiversity that desperately needs it. But right now there's no medium of exchange. There's no way to get that flow happening. To do that, you've got to create this basically a record of where we are now and then where those MPAs are going as they improve. And if you can do that, we believe you've got a massive opportunity to change things quickly. So can you unpack these biodiversity markets a little bit? Like what, it seems like one of the main revenue streams would be issuing biodiversity credits that then have to make their way to some demand source, you know, some big buyers in the market. Can you talk a little bit about what um, early signs you see that there is going to be demand for these credits when they do come online? 
And yeah. Gordon, I would turn that I would turn that over to you. I will just say one okay. thing about it, which is I think we are we are very excited, but we have to tread carefully. And we know that. Like mm-hmm. even this comment will get a lot of there's gonna be a lot of feedback, right? <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, you can't do biodiversity credits, you can't, you can't, you can't. But that doesn't get us anywhere. We have to try. And the thing that got me so excited about this project in the first place was and really unlock for me what Web3 is all about and the potential is transparency and the opportunity to do something where it doesn't have to be perfect. As long as it's transparent, we have the opportunity to start somewhere and we have to start somewhere. We don't have time to wait. So that is what I think is, you know, so promising about it. But we, we understand that it's not a small thing to try to create a biodiversity credit market and they do exist locally. Right now, there are MPAs that are issuing biodiversity credits that are local. But, but the problem is, because they're trying to tie to the specificity of that local MPA, which is the right thing, but you have to figure out how to build a bridge from the local instantiation to a shared economy. And that's really mm. the trick, right? That is the big unlock. And Gordon, I'll let you talk about how we want to try to do that. Yeah, so I think there's there's a there's a number of different areas where we think that there will be biodiversity opportunities, and I think that they will ultimately roll up into a market that I I believe is going to be end up being a lot larger than the carbon markets, um, and uh, I think that that's the case because you've got if you think about like what are the constituent components like putting aside just the basic ecosystem services of like the stuff that Courtney talked about where 50% of the world's oxygen and you know something like 70% of primary production it happens in the oceans right like so we need that to continue to happen so but even if you just look at like all right fisheries uh ecotourism insurance insurance is going to be a massive one right both for like people wanting to make sure that their hotel doesn't get obliterated because it's on the coast but even more broadly when you start looking at like uh, as particularly in the global south that often have nature based economies and those economies are getting squeezed because they often owe a lot of debt to the global north and if you squeeze an ecosystem too hard you can you can increase output momentarily but you're going to end up with a collapse and so and if you and if you collapse an ecosystem that a country depends on, you have big problems. You have like collapsed economies, you have depression, you have potential failed states, you have debtors not getting repaid. So there's going to be a big market around sort of preserving and ensuring against biodiversity risk. And we already see Swiss Re has started doing that with coral reefs, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, which is great. And then, you know, there's also the blue carbon opportunity. So there's a lot of opportunity in sort of coastal blue carbon and mangroves and salt marshes and seagrass and things like that, um, which is going to be a a massive unlock. And a lot of that is very life driven as well. Um, And then lastly, as I alluded to earlier, there's the genetic component as well. So as synthetic biology and as ocean based um, pharma or, or or what they call natural products are developed from uh, genes or clusters of genes that that are originated in the ocean those you know those could be billion dollar gene clusters themselves right there so we think that they're like we think that's that sort of the yeah the broad market for biodiversity, I think, is going to end up being much larger um, in a lot of ways. And the other thing to sort of really point about biodiversity that I think is kind of interesting and I find kind of personally encouraging is that, you know, ec- excess CO2 is 
basically like a waste product. Um, and it's, um, it has a price because governments have said that it, there, there needs to be a price on it, which is like appropriate and, and good that we have that. But life is a little different. Life has like intrinsic value and has economic value as well um, in terms of the services that it can provide. And so there is like real economic momentum and potential in life-driven markets as opposed to something that's just got a floor price because it, there's a regulation in place. So I think that that's kind of the, the, the broad sort of cut at like what a biodiversity market looks like. To Courtney's point, like, you know, every piece of nature is unique and precious and we get that. And in one sense, like nature is not, is non-fungible, but you can't have a market if you just say everything is non-fungible because you've got no liquidity and you've got nothing to trade against. And so one of the concepts that we look at is given a unit area of ocean, in our case, what do we think is the max regen potential of that area? And has it achieved that? So if something's at 50% right now, that gives you sort of a lot of headroom to sort of increase the biomass, increase the biodiversity or what it, whatever it is it's where whatever it is it's lacking in. And so we think that there are ways to create fungibility without having to say that a piece of ocean in the in the sort of north, you know, Arctic Sea is the same as something off the coast of Hawaii. They're not the same ecosystems. I mean, beyond being marine, but they do have sort of attributes or sort of key components that you can sort of measure like how well are they doing on these sort of sort of five basic pillars in terms of their potential. Is, so from that, you can develop sort of fungibility. And with fungibility, what really comes that, that we're particularly excited about is starting to look at how do you create bioregional economies, right? Because as you guys know, with carbon projects, each carbon project got to basically have a slush fund in case the forest burns down or whatever it is. So similarly, like you can look at what's called like, you know, like a, as currents move up and down the coast of the Americas, for example, that's like a range of countries. And those countries have MPAs. And each one of those MPAs, you could imagine creating a bioregional economy where they all contribute into the pool of biocredits so that if like an oil tanker runs aground in one area and does a lot of damage, they can self-insure across those areas. And that's because of the fungible layer that Courtney was talking about. And so we're very early in this process. And one of the things that um, you know, we're very keen on is really like open sourcing this and trying to invite the collective intelligence of the global ocean community to participate. This is a, this is a super complicated problem, right? We don't have all the answers. We're building a container to allow people to come and participate. And when they have a good idea that makes sense, they can be rewarded for that process. And not just in a prestige thing, but actually start to make money money um, by contributing data sets and models that help us make better predictive statements. Mm. I, I'm struck by the symmetries between what you're describing and the Collectivo framework. I don't know how mm -hmm. deeply you've dug into that, but they've got these kind of local impact economies. At the moment they've got food forests and I think reefs um, that they're they're protecting in Curacao. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I was reefs. just actually talking to Pat Ross and yesterday about um this idea of kind of risk mutualization 
where you've mm-hmm. got kind of swaps between these credits being generated by different food forests in different bioregions so that if a hurricane comes to Curacao and damages all their food forests, they've got some backup from some other community that's on the other side of the world that didn't experience that kind of weather event. Um, so, yeah, I mean... And- Super cool. In oceans, it's very cool that it's happening actually at the same time that what they've discovered is that for marine life, you need to create what they call swimways. So they're creating connectivity already. The Eastern Tropical Pacific is this connection, Mm. you know, Chile, Argentina, Costa Rica, Mexico, up the coast, because they realize that all the way out to Galapagos, because life needs to move around. It doesn't just stay in this one region. So uh, I think it's cool that it... That and also, I think it's so amazing that at the time of all these great challenges, we also are having this incredible unlock of all these scientists and technologists, engineers, that are fed up with academia and are looking for a way to contribute right now. They're very frustrated. They've unlocked, you know, they've they've discovered they have so much knowledge, but nowhere for that knowledge to go. And we, I think, collectively have an opportunity with some of these platforms and incentive design to give people a real reward for contributing great science to solve a really big problem. And that to me also, this whole idea around micropubs, and it is so exciting. And you can tell we've now met so many scientists who are so lit up by the opportunity. You know, one of the folks that we work, our, you know, our, our lead scientist is one of these people operating in an institute that he likes, but, you know, really wants to be able to be a part of something bigger. And it's a really... I think it's an exciting time. As much as it's a challenging time, it's also very exciting to see all these minds, I think, get unlocked in this way. There's this great sort of wealth of talent in the global ocean community that has been somewhat sort of stuck behind academic and other institutions, and they've done amazing work there. But, you know, we now need to start applying things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the regenerative finance, the refi movement is an incredible opportunity to do incentive design so that we can create economies that are going to align human wealth with ecological well-being and sort of the bridge between between that is increasingly becoming uh, decentralized science, DSI. And so how do you start to put like the these open source, these, these science, scientific frameworks so that you can really get like a lot of people collaborating effectively so that you can create meta models that can produce outputs that can then sort of quantify biodiversity and you align that with economic incentives that are saying, okay, the better the, the, the better the oceans do, the more money everybody is making. Um, so I think it's like, I, I know the news is bad, you know, like the headlines are <laughs> terrible. Um, but, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually like incredibly optimistic too, because, you know, like as Courtney said, enough people are like waking up and going like, this sucks. And like, we don't want to blow up the world and let's, and, and we've got something to contribute and we're now building containers and not just New Atlantis, but people all around the world are working on trying to build open platforms that allow people to come together and aggregate and collect in DAO type structures where they can actually have an output and and can have a material impact on the world around them. I don't know, I just think it's extremely exciting to see the alignment of science uh, technology and economics, um, you know, pointed towards ecological well-being. So I, I know it's, like I said, bad news, but, you know, it's also very, very motivating, I think, for people. So 
Yeah, totally. And it takes founders like you guys taking up this crazy, complex <laughs> web of crises <laughs> to, to make it happen. Like, I, I really do believe that, you know, we need an ecosystem of innovation with thousands of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. all over the world trying out different things and seeing what works. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Amen. awesome having you guys in the founder circles. It's great seeing you um, do so well in the DSI round and across Gitcoin as a whole. I think you guys are like the third top grant across all the, you know, 1200 projects, which is incredible. It just shows that there really is a residing sentiment of confidence in, you know, the big picture of what you're doing. I would really enjoy breaking down kind of like the user journey almost to understand the elements of the system that you're building and to look at the core actors. Because in my mind, we have, you know, the marine protected area. And I'm thinking like, who owns that? Are there like, you know, who are the people there? Obviously, there's fishermen, um, and the communities around that. But then there's, you know, people who are taking samples of DNA in the ocean and uploading this data set onto some web platform. And then I assume there's something else that happens around, like you guys said, the the modeling and the predictions. Um, and then at some point there's like a credit issuance, right? That some corporate ends up buying and retiring to say we're upholding our, you know, climate commitments or our, you know, sustainability goals. Um, could we talk more from like a systems view of the different actors and like how this works in a linear process? So for the MPA, you've got usually three actors, the government, the there's an NGO typically that's involved that has a long-term relationship with the local community. And then you have the community itself. And then you have New Atlantis, which is putting you know assets in the water. So we're doing the sampling, but we're going to partner with local scientists and we're going to partner with the community to actually do sample collection because we think that's an important piece. So they're really invested. And they are, they are actors both in the collection and in the financial uh, benefit, right? So um, can, they can are I just ask, Yeah. Well, I was just going to ask, so you talk about the government. Are most mm-hmm. MPAs within exclusive economic zones or are there also MPAs in the high seas? And how are the ones in the high seas administered? So that's what they're working on right now. It's actually, I think this is the fifth of five meetings, uh, you know, no comment, um, from the high seas, uh, the UN high seas treaty, right? They've been meeting and meeting and they have gotten to a place where, and this is kind of where we came into the conversation right now, they're wrestling with this question of DNA ownership. And I think they're getting closer to an idea if they can figure out the rev share that, hey, let's just agree that these are all shared resources we want to protect. And if there's some discovery, it should benefit everyone. Right. Mm. So that's kind of where high seas is for the 250 miles, you know, from your coastline out, that is your government's provenance. They are, you know, you're operating in their dominion. So any discoveries or any, right, you are subject to their laws and you have to partner with them. And that's important. And, you know, that's why it's important to go to these conferences to make contact, understand their perspective. The good news is, again, I think the tide is turning in the global south. They seem quite motivated to support the eastern uh, tropical Pacific swimway, which we which really going to be where our first pilot uh, takes place uh, starting next year. So that's where it starts. The anchoring back to the kind of um, user flow, you said we've got three actors in marine protected areas, the government's an NGO, and then New Atlantis yep. and the scientific community who are taking these samples. And then we hand Can you off. continue on the that's kind right. of linear systems flow for us, if that's all right? Yep. And then their scientist is coordinating with ours. And Gordon, go ahead. So, so once we have like, there's a whole sampling protocol, right? Because you can't, you don't just like, it's not as simple as just throwing a bucket in the water. You have to like 
Constant make sure sampling. it's happening. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're sampling every two weeks and you've got a sort of temperature, salinity, GIS data and all that kind of stuff. So, but once we get the sample, the raw sequence data, we then run that through what's called a metagenome analysis. And so uh, a genome is the DNA readout of a species or an individual uh, within the species, but we do it at the species level. A metagenome is the aggregate of all the species uh, within uh, uh, a particular water sample. And so that's kind of a snapshot of who's living there and what their relative abundance is. And as I mentioned, we're doing full metagenome analysis. So unlike sort of uh, more, you know, traditional eDNA, environmental DNA approaches, which look at what are called marker genes or metabarcoding, where they can only kind of tell you who's there and how many is there, they don't really get a lot of insight into like how, how well are they doing from a health perspective. And so our view is, is that we, just as in the same way that you go to the doctor for preventative health screenings, we want to start being able to sample uh, metagenomes over time and see what is the metabolic health of these ecosystems. And that becomes, uh, that data set, that time series data set becomes sort of the baseline that uh, additional kinds of uh, techniques such as like proteomics and metabolomics or multiomics is, is sort of the catch-all phrase can be applied so that you can start to do um, ecological modeling on top of that and really do both what-if questions as well as also start to make forecasts on the actual health and well-being of the ecosystem in credit in question. Um, so that is our New Atlantis's role in this, to get back to your question, is we see ourselves as building the base level container where we built the data lab, like cloud data lab pipeline and the, the metagenome analysis pipeline. And we're building it in a very containerized way using Kubernetes and all the latest and greatest fancy stuff so that people can then, who have have models or bioinformatics pipelines of their own can come and plug into our data sets and into our pipeline and start experimenting and or contributing uh, their own insights. And our meta goal is to create what's called a meta model where we aggregate a lot of different ways of measuring biodiversity, some of them, some of which will be very specific to certain kinds of ecosystems, others of which are sort of more general, but that way you can both like take advantage or take into account the locality of someplace and also sort of more general frameworks and start to use that to create a, a, a biodiversity credit market or, or to quantify the biodiversity within that area itself. And we, we intend to do this in an open, collaborative way. And as Courtney said, it's not going to be perfect, but it's better than nothing. And because there's market mechanisms involved where, you know, if, um, you know, Courtney has a model that's better than my model, her model might be used more frequently than my model within the meta model, which means that she can get paid a greater percentage of the token mint per run on that. And so you've got this sort of competitive dynamic where people are gonna have, they're gonna wanna put their best models forward because if their model has the best predictive accuracy, it's gonna be used more widely and that's gonna essentially become a, a revenue stream for the people who contribute those models. So you get sort of an upward pressure in terms of quality and you get an, a, a widening of coverage of the models that way. And by doing it in an open way where it's verifiable, and this isn't, 
a somewhat technical but important point, we are very focused on the data provenance of all of these bioinformatics runs because reproducibility is going to be super important. So we really want to make sure that we have all the parameters sort of well documented and uh, on chain so that people can see that if they ran the same data, you know, the, the same model against the same data set, they're going to get the same output so that they can have confidence that the model is producing what it says it's producing and no one's sort of messing around with the outputs. Super interesting. And, and just to kind of touch on a specific aspect of it, which is once you create this kind of baseline of what's happening in this marine protected area, it's probably degenerating. What are the actual behaviors that people are doing to regenerate and increase the amount of life in this ocean? And then obviously you're continuing to run samples to verify that yes, those behaviors are having an intended impact. But like, what are people doing? Is it, you know, and who's doing it? Like, what are the behaviors that this system is actually incentivizing in the ocean? I mean, the thing that's so crazy is it's really just about leaving it alone. And that is Doing one nothing. of the problems right now is that these <laughs> yeah. MPAs, yeah. nature, it turns yeah. out, like knows what she's doing, you know? Um, Shocker. Shocker. Um, so, but, but really the problem, one of the biggest problems with MPAs right now is enforcement. I just read, I think in the UK, some of the biggest dredging of the seafloor for shrimp comes inside an MPA. Why? Because there's no enforcement. And why is there no enforcement? Because they don't have funding. So this really is the key problem. We've got the tool. The tool is don't do anything. Just stay away. Mm -hmm. Right. And the ocean will fix it for you, you idiots. Yeah. But we have to yeah. make it financially feasible for them, you know, for that to happen. And the good news, too, is we're, we're only talking about 30%. I mean, actually, we should be jumping up and down. Oh, we only have to leave 30% of the ocean protected and we'll all be good and doing a happy dance. I mean, it seems it seems quite obvious. One thing too that I think is will be amazing. You, you know, you guys mentioned something about corporate, you know, credits, but I think the other big unlock is individuals want to invest. And I think you know one of the issues around carbon with these corporate offsets, you know, so much of the negative, there there is a lot of control around what gets verified, and that's important, right? But can't we use transparency as a way of validation? that would allow us to unlock in a way that is very powerful. I think there are a lot of individuals who would like to invest in ecological restoration. Instead of giving $20 you know, to a nonprofit, not to say that nonprofits don't play an amazing role, but if I could buy a bond for my child that in 10 years is gonna be worth more and she gets to see, she can look at an NFT and it's got a longitude latitude and we get to go to that place and she could actually like sit in a boat on top of it and snorkel in this place that she helped protect and it becomes more valuable over time. That to me, you know, that is, that's the vision, right? That's, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I, I think like little sea, sea bonds, you know, put them in their like sea piggy bank, right? So that they grow over yeah. time. Um, but if, if I, I want to just touch on one thing that Courtney said about leaving it alone. She's totally, she's totally right about that. It's like the ocean is, has great what's called phylogenetic diversity, right? So like ocean is actually quite resilient in many ways, and which is, which is good news, right? And one of the things uh, I was just watching some, um, 
uh, YouTube about a bunch of scientists talking about the efficacy of MPAs. And within the MPAs themselves, they saw typically like a 600% increase in biomass relative mm -hmm. to outside of the MPAs, right? So if you just leave it alone, like, like the, 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 the species can, you know, and it's, you know, warming is an issue and there are issues. It's not, it's like, you know, but there's, but, but there's great potential adaptability given the, the genetic variability in a lot of these species. And if you just leave it alone, there's going to be a, like a, a high likelihood that um, a lot, the ocean can solve a lot of this for itself. Now, there probably will be cases where, you know, humanity is going to want to intervene or need to intervene to help get things righted. But by and large, like, you know, it, if we just protect the areas there, we're going to get a six, you know, a six X increase in those well, areas. We have to, so we have to account. There are some downward pressures. Look, that whole, the whole snow crab, it's fascinating because I think this is one of the first biodiversity uh, stories that has jumped sort of up to public consciousness. Everyone talking about the loss of, you know, 8 billion snow crabs over a period of two years, right? And they had to end the fishing season this year. That's from, they think it's from warming. So there are issues, there are downward pressures, but the idea is that even with that downward pressure, if you've got protection, it does allow them to only focus on one fight, if that makes sense. And the complexity yep. in the system is fundamental. The more, this is why it's so important. It's not about one species. I think the other thing that we've really sort of been focusing on is it's really about the web. It's not about a hero species. I mean, that doesn't mean we don't all want to save whales because we do. But the reality is it's about the complexity of the system because the complexity of the system is what makes it resilient. And we're going to continue to have pressures and warming. No matter how effective we are, that's going to continue, right? And so we have those areas and those systems, those ecosystems need to focus on those problems, not on additional problems like pressure from industrialized fishing or sea mining or some of the other things that are coming at us. I can absolutely see it. There's obviously, it's rests on a lot of intersecting technologies but um yep. i've been i've been thinking a lot about the future of of the impact markets right carbon credits are mm -hmm. a form of impact certificate and i think and hope that it's actually quite soon we'll start seeing these other differentiated impact certificates like biodiversity credits marine health credit um child's education credits right and um, I think your point, Courtney, about the power of individual consumers and being a real demand source for these kind of more exotic impact certificates early on is a really good one. I, I, I'd love to see like impact curators designing a portfolio that I could subscribe to and that has some of these riskier credits, but that may be like really high impact. Um, I, I would love to know, I was really excited to see the advisors you have, right? Especially the engagement with um, the some some real thought leaders and, and luminaries within the ocean science world. What questions were they asking when, when you came and you're like, guys, it's a DAO. Like, how did that <laughs> land? And what were some of what the hesitations? That was the first exactly. question. Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> You know, I, I don't know. John. I mean, <laughs> so good to have you back, bro. <laughs> I would, Gordon, I don't know what you're, I'll tell you what my impression was. The first one was, I was shocked at how enthusiastic people were. Honestly, mm -hmm. like, we're, who are we, right? We're just, we're two entrepreneurs, fine, but we're coming out of left field. 
And I think what we saw very quickly was they are quite, they're worried, you know? They are closer to the information than we are. And they need things to happen very fast. And so I think we have been really pleasantly surprised by how incredibly eager they are to get involved and watch things, to Gordon's earlier point, watch things happen. There's been a lot of conversation, a lot of meetings, a lot of papers, a lot of, you know, but we got to start doing stuff. Things need to start happening. And so I think the overall response has been, how can we help? And now that we've got a much more refined vision, I mean, like we said, we spent a year in the soup, you know, reading, watching, listening, kind of winding our way through to get to a place that we really made sense to us. And once we got there, I think everyone that we've talked to, we've added some, you know, I think pretty incredible folks since then, even. And two of one, they've all said, it's starting to feel like it could happen. It's very complex, but that this, com to your point, John, this combination of things, both in the scientific fields around meta-omics or multi-omics, meeting these cloud data lab opportunity, meeting incentive structure design, meeting the transparency of Web3, we might just pull it off. It's gonna be really hard. This is our joke early on. I said our tagline should be, <laughs> New Atlantis, this is hard. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. what else are you going to do, right? Like it's, we're, yeah. we're, we, we're going to fight. And I, and I just think the scientific community has actually been incredibly excited for, yeah. you know, our advisors I, I, seem pretty eager. Yeah. I was going to say, John, to your answer to your, like uh, to make a comment on, on one of your, your statement earlier, it's like, it does rest on a number of tech. Our success does rest on a number of technologies, but I would point out that it's not about the new Atlantis team per se. It's about can you have to for us to be successful in large matter, you have to the leap of faith that somebody has to make is like, can we build a container that can integrate mm -hmm. effectively right. data sets and models and insights from the larger ocean community? Can and we I think that that's. And can yeah. we, and can we, uh, yeah, can we coordinate? Can we use like crypto economics as well as like, you know, data engineering and bioinformatics pipelines to create a coordinated system that allows us in an open way to iterate transparently and to and to move towards like sort of outcomes that we all agree are beneficial and we have data sets that we can measure it against right so and this is going to be one of those things where it's like you know it'll it'll bump along but as we start to find our groove i think we'll eventually sort of hit that like knee in the, in the curve, right? As like, as more and more pieces start to come together. And that's kind of the nature of like collaborative systems that can have the potential to scale exponentially. And this goes to this, this point about exponential scaling, I think is really the underlying driver of what Courtney was talking about. We've known for I mean, depending on who you want to ask, like anywhere from, you know, 100 plus years to certainly the last 30 or 40 years that like humanity is having a significant impact on the climate and by extension, nature and biodiversity. And the solutions in as much as there have been solutions put forward so far by governments have been not particularly effective in a lot of cases and have scaled linearly at best, but we're starting to hit these like exponential tipping points and we need to do something faster 
to in order to sort of reverse these curves before they become sort of, you know, really catastrophic. And I think it's an all hands on deck moment. I think yeah. there's also a recognition that, um, you know, that that it's not a bad thing to try to align profit motive with ecological benefit. Because mm. I think people are seeing, particularly given the state of the global economy, where you got deglobalization, you've got energy shortage, you've got potential food shortage, you've got supply chain disruption, you've got everybody downstream of the dollar has got a, like a lot of inflation that they're dealing with. And programs that are dependent on philanthropy and government subsidies, particularly in the global south, are just not going to get the resources that they need. And so for us to come and say, here's a way that we can align sort of the individual benefits of the actors within the system with the global outcome, then that's 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 worth trying. And people are, are excited to to step up and try to figure out how can we enable a system that can build an economy that can value a, an, a, a healthy ocean. Yeah, I, I definitely think we're at a moment where we should not be cutting off any avenues to innovation and climate action. Mm -hmm. um, and I think actually, Courtney, I was kind of struck by your point earlier about how MPA suffer from a lack of enforcement. And it feels mm -hmm. like economic value generation. Like, why would I go take my boats out to stop people dredging the, you know, the, the, the seafloor if it's not a substantial revenue stream for my government, but if this is exactly. now a substantial revenue stream for my government, it's like, Hey, I got to protect, you know, I've got to protect how we're making our money to fund our, our public services. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah. the insurance yeah. business that ensures that place. Right. Or right. The, there's so many ways to create incentives, not for all those yeah. parties, also for yeah. industry. The reality is if you don't create incentives for, sh for shippers, they're going to keep striking whales. Like you have mm -hmm. to create either a disincentive or an incentive for them to avoid that whale, which they can, but you need a different system design for sure. Well, I'm personally super excited to see you guys take your next step. Um, <laughs> just be curious to say like, what is next? What can people expect um, from you guys around the corner? And for people listening who really resonate with this amazing opportunity that you've crafted, how can people get involved? First of all, what's so exciting about the Gitcoin grant and what an incredible process that is, first of all, just a hat tip to them, right? It's an amazing thing to go through. And, and it has, I think, lit up our discord in a way that the community has grown quickly, which we love. So first, obviously, an open invitation to join us in the discord and, uh, you know, join the conversation. And two, just to start thinking and paying attention to the role that Ocean plays you know, in your life, in the life of people you love and in the oxygen that you're breathing and all the things that we do. Plastics is actually a big part of it. It is a big part of the conversation. It does have real ramifications for life in the ocean. So it seems silly. And I know we talk about this stuff all the time, but, you know, using less plastic does matter. But I'll let Gordon finish. I'm sure much more high minded note. Uh, well, I don't know if it's high minded or not, but like I but thank you know, again, I want to thank you guys both for the opportunity to talk about New Atlantis. So like obviously Courtney and I are very bullish on New Atlantis. And I would love to sort of throw out the challenge and the invitation to the refi community um, in general. So if you 
people listening out there want to get involved either on sort of the ecological modeling side or the token design side like we got lots we That's got right. lots of interesting lots of problems to, to work with <laughs> yeah. yeah so and and we think that there you know we think this is a this is a you know one of those areas where like as we get people together and they start collaborating you know you really can start to see really interesting um, developments emerge we've seen it in our own DAO where people in, in the discord people who we don't know have just shown up and we're now like collaborating effectively with them. So it's like it is working and it can scale and it does work. And, um, you know, for those who are wanting to contribute but don't necessarily have a platform to either sort of bring their ecological traits model to market in some way or to apply nature-based currency design in some way we would love to chat and and if you want to just come and you know hang for the vibes you know it's like we we have another thing we say is like you know new atlantis come for the science stay for the adventure um we would love for uh, you know we would love um anybody who wants to come and help us uh you know develop memes like if that's a thing your thing so um, we're, we've got open doors and uh, it's a fun environment and um, and I can definitely promise it won't be boring. So before we go though, can I, I just want to tell you guys too, thank you so much for the role that this podcast plays yeah. in my life. Gordon uh, and the yeah. team laugh because you can always tell when I've listened to one of your podcasts because I immediately <laughs> share it to the Discord and I wax yeah. lyrical <laughs> about the vision yeah. and why we're all yeah. here. And it, you really yeah. do an incredible job, I think, of both enlightening us but also inspiring us. And you know, when the news can be challenging, it just it really plays an important role. I listened to that Bioneers episode and I called mm. Gordon. I was like, "Have you listened? You need to listen to this right now." And we need <laughs> yeah. to remember. And she yeah. was, and it's just thank you guys because it really ma it really matters, and mm -hmm. uh, you know you guys have uh, been an important part of our journey from day one for sure. So yeah. just grateful to you. Yeah, oh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, for sure. You guys, you guys crush it, and it's super fun to listen to, and it's uplifting and informative and very inspiring. And so, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. So. Bless you guys. Thank you so much. You're definitely the reason why we're here. I feel very much at home with you both. And uh, yeah, great to have you back, John. For those listening, check out New Atlantis on Twitter, New Atlantis DAO, New Atlantis DAO, and on Discord, discord.gg slash New Atlantis. Uh, that's Gordon and Courtney. Thank you guys and looking forward to hearing next from you. And we'll see you in a few days, Gordon. All right. See Bye, you guys. Be well. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye.